Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Uh, so good to see you here. So glad for us to be together. Uh, it is not lost on me, and I hope not on you, uh, that this time last year we were scattered. Uh, we were in our homes. We weren't able to gather together in this way. And so I am so thankful that we get to do that today, that we get to come and gather together and to celebrate uh, the central truth of our faith that everything hinges on. And so as we do this morning, I just start by saying uh, this truth that we believe is so wonderful, it's so big, it's so uh, all-encompassing that it can deliver us from everything bad and give you a hope that will not disappoint. And I say that, and I'm not, that's not hyperbolic, that's not untrue, that is the fullness of the gospel and what Jesus has done. But I know as I say that, uh, today in light of even the last year, you may think, okay, maybe, right? Maybe that's true, maybe that's a little bit overstated. Uh, it's easy for us, I think, in the last year with all that's happened, uh, all the struggles, pandemic, everything that's been going on, it's made it a little harder uh, to have hope. Uh, it's made it a little more difficult in some ways. I think all the things that happen when we think about just the idea of hope, right? Being excited about the future, or if we were to take a biblical definition, a confident assurance in what is to come. And it becomes difficult when there's so many things pressing in. There's so many things that you, you think are getting better and then they don't get better. And, and you want to have that hope and you want to be excited, but then it's hard to do so. It, it makes me think actually from a quote from one of my favorite movies. Uh, the movie Shawshank Redemption. If you've ever seen it, it's about two guys that become really good friends in prison. And they're in prison together. And the older gentleman and the younger guy in this relationship, the younger guy's kind of more hopeful and always kind of looking ahead. And the older gentleman, his, his good friend, says to him at one point in the movie, hope is a dangerous thing. It can drive a man insane. And in the context of the movie, it's two guys in prison, most likely going to be prison for their life. That's not a bad statement in the context of the movie, but that's kind of the way the last year felt in a lot of ways. Hope can be a dangerous thing. It can begin to drive you insane when so many things seem to keep kind of popping up that are not good. And so I was thinking about why that's the case the last year. Why so much of what happened in 2020 kind of amplified so many things that we struggle with. And I was reading uh, an article just this past week. It's from Psychology Today. And they were talking about the greatest fears, kind of the universal fears that we have as human beings, the things that we most struggle with. And it was talking about how it doesn't matter what culture, all cultures kind of land on this list they had. And they had 10 things in their list, our biggest fears. And they were the fear of death, the fear of loneliness, fear of failure, rejection, uncertainty, Bad things happening, getting hurt, being judged, and inadequacy. You know, I read through that, riff, that list, and I started thinking of everything that's happened in the last year, what 2020 brought, and just about everything on that list got amplified. Almost all of them were kind of brought to the forefront in a lot of ways, right? Loneliness, uh, uncertainty, bad things happening, all those getting hurt, even the fear of death. And all of those things were kind of brought to the forefront. And so this morning, I want us to consider how the resurrection of Jesus Christ answers every single one of them. How the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus gives us the ability to have a true and living hope that we can trust in. To truly hope again 
And so I want us to think about it in light of this passage in Luke chapter 24. Because what we're going to see in this passage is Jesus is going to come and stand among his disciples. And a lot of what they're dealing with could be summarized by that list. They're dealing with all sorts of things coming at them. And so as we look at that, we're going to look at Luke chapter 24. Uh, I know this is a brilliant insight, but Luke, the gospel of Luke is written by Luke, if you weren't aware. Luke was a physician, but he's also a historian who undertook to take the eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life and compile them. And so that's what we're reading, eyewitness accounts of what happened. And so when we get to the end of Luke chapter 24, we're on the first Easter Sunday, late in the afternoon, early in the evening. And a lot's happened on that day, right? We, we read, uh, Luke read for us this morning that they went to the tomb and it was empty and Mary Magdalene sees Jesus and then uh, it tells us in the Gospels that later Peter comes to see him, although we don't know exactly how that worked or played out. But there's these different things that are happening, all of it happening on that first Easter Sunday, these, these sightings of Jesus. And we get to Luke chapter 24 in the beginning of the, the chapter that we're not going to look at this morning. Two men are walking along a road to Emmaus and Jesus comes and walks with them and he begins to explain everything that happened. And he's, he's kind of hidden himself and they don't know who he is and they sit down to eat with him and then he reveals himself to them. And so when they see Jesus, they get so excited as he leaves them that they go running back to the disciples to tell them what happened. And so these guys get back to Jerusalem and they find the disciples and it says in verse three, 33 of Luke chapter 24, they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been, he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And so this is our context. They come running back and they tell the disciples, the disciples are hearing all these different stories that Jesus is alive and they've been seen, but they don't know what to make of it. And so they're in this room waiting and it's here that Jesus steps in and speaks to them. Now, if we were to read the parallel account in John chapter 20, it tells of the same encounter. John adds in for us that they were up in this room with the door locked because they were afraid. They were in fear and that they're huddled up together when these guys show up. And that's what's the context of going on. And so I want you just before we even look at what Jesus says to consider their emotional state. What it is they're dealing with as Jesus comes and stands among them. What they're feeling in those moments. And so if you know anything about the time historically, uh, Jerusalem is, is being ruled by the Roman Empire at this moment. The Romans have taken over. They've kind of taken over the known world. We're actually in a time that's been referred to as the Pax Romana, which just means Roman peace. And so there was about a 200 year period where there was relative peace on the earth because the Romans were in control. But it's kind of a misnomer to call it the Roman peace. There was peace, relative peace. And the reason was because if anyone crossed Rome, they killed you. If anyone caused any problems, they publicly executed you. And that was to send a message. This is what happens if you mess with Rome. And so everybody kind of in fear was like, don't mess with them. And that's why there was relative peace. And so here they are hidden away. And to understand why we have to rewind just a couple of days to Friday. It's what we gathered together to celebrate on Good Friday. Jesus was taken by the Roman authorities uh, at the urging of the religious leaders 
And he was beaten and tortured and publicly executed on Friday morning. And as that happened, Jesus' followers, who were so excited about who he was and what he was doing and everything they thought that he was going to bring, saw all their hopes come crashing down in front of them. See, Jesus' followers believed Jesus was the Messiah, and he was the one they had been looking for, and they're seeking to follow him. But in their understanding, he was going to bring the kingdom of God right then and there. They thought Jesus is going to lead a revolution and we're going to overthrow Rome and he's going to be ruling and reigning and we're going to be right there with him and everything's going to be great. But then Friday morning, the ones that they're hoping he's going to overthrow, this empire brutally kills him. And so from that Friday morning until where we are on Sunday evening, their whole world has come crashing down. Everything they thought they knew. And so just think for a moment the emotions of those hours, what that must have been like from Friday when Jesus is crucified till this Sunday night. I don't know if you've ever lost anyone in your life or lost someone uh, tragically or unexpectedly. If you've ever gone through that kind of emotion and what happens in that. Uh, my, my younger brother, Jed, was 15 young, months younger than me, died in a car wreck 14 years ago when he was 29 years old. I was with Jed on Wednesday. I talked to him on Thursday. And then Saturday morning, my mom called to say he's dead. That he died in a car wreck. And I remember those days, weeks after, like a fog of like, how did this happen? You'd wake up and go, that's not real. And you go, it is real. He's not here. And it's so hard to get your head around those emotions when that happens, especially when it happens so quickly. And you're wrestling with those things. And I think that's what the disciples were feeling in these moments. They had these great hopes and they were so excited and they're following Jesus and everything's going to be great. And now he's gone. And so they're hiding, locked away. They're locked away in a room trying to keep the bad things out. Because the reality is, if Rome could kill Jesus, what would stop them from killing his followers just to make sure that nobody else brings an uprising? And so they're locked away, hidden in fear. And so I would just say to you, maybe, just maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you experienced something in the last year where you tried to lock yourself away in fear. I think we've all done that at different times and we felt that. We want to keep the bad things out and we'll just stay home and then everything will be okay. And so we try to control what's around us. But it's into that that Jesus steps. And so look at what he says. Verse 36, they were talking about these things and Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. We're going to think about the disciples in just a second. But Jesus steps in and it's almost comical, is it not? Here they are, afraid, hidden, door locked. And Jesus steps in and says, peace to you. What are you worried about? What's going on? What's the problem? And they're all standing there with their mouths open, looking at him, going, what is happening? 
And I want you just to think about the emotions they're going through. I I love that we have eyewitness accounts that tell us because it tells us what they were. And I think they're believable. It's a real account of what happened. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a ghost. They were afraid. This is Jesus who was just killed. We saw him publicly killed and now he's standing here. How can this be? But then verse 41, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, they disbelieved for joy. This is too good to be true. How is this possible? He's standing here right in front of us. And so in that moment, all of a sudden, all the categories they thought they have are exploding. Everything they thought they knew about Jesus is radically changing in the moment. And I don't know how long it takes for it to fully dawn on them, but Jesus here is going to explain to them why this is true. But suddenly the one that they had been following, this Jesus that they had put their hope and trust in, is something greater than they thought he was. He's not just one who's coming to overthrow uh, the, the empire. He's something greater than a conquering king. He's something greater than a wonderful teacher. He's something greater than a brilliant man. He's something greater than someone who is just kind and gracious and shows us how to love one another. Something greater is here. And their mouths are hanging open and they're trying to get their head around what's happening here. You know, every year I read this text and I love this scene and I think about it. But at this point, it always makes me think of a movie. Every year I I just get in my mind as I see them with their mouths hanging open and they're all staring at Jesus, disbelieving because this is too good to be true. How can this be? And so forgive me. I am 44 years old and I'm a guy. And so the movie that I think of, 1999 sci-fi action movie, The Matrix. It's what I always think of when I read this. That's what always comes to my mind. Now, you may say, great choice of a movie, 1999 action movie. I was talking to Jed about it in the car and he's like, dad, you're not going to talk about the matrix. Come on. Nobody's even going to know what that is anymore. So I'm totally dating myself. I'm totally showing my age. I'm I'm also dating how uh, out of touch I am with movies today, (laughs) that that's my, my movie. But I'll tell you why it has one of the greatest resurrection scenes in the film. If you don't know what the matrix is, it doesn't matter. I'll tell you just real briefly, big picture. The movie essentially is this. There are some people working uh, to do away, uh, to free everyone from all the bad that's in the world. It's the premise of the movie, more or less. And in the movie, they are certain that there is one, the one that they're looking for, the Messiah figure that's going to free everyone. And they've been looking for him throughout the movie. And they find the one that they think is him. And they all keep saying, I think he's the one. And if you watch the movie, it becomes very clear it's the Christ figure in the movie. In fact, the filmmaker said they borrowed heavily from the Gospels and the story of Jesus. They don't hide it. And so the one is the Messiah. And they all keep saying, I think he's the one. I think he's the one. I think this is it. I think he's going to do it. And so you follow him through the movie and he keeps doing all these incredible things. And they're all going, yes, this is him. And you get to right towards the end of the movie. And he's in a hallway trying to escape the bad guys and he turns the corner and they have him cornered. Three bad guys with their guns drawn and our hero is standing there and they open fire and they shoot him. And he falls to the ground and he dies. And all the people that are saying he's the one all go, what just happened? 
One of the guys I think in the movie actually says, like, I thought he was the one. And they're all watching. And they show you in the film his heart has stopped beating, that he is dead, he is on the ground, he's been filled with bullets. He's dead. And they show you that, and they kind of take you through. And, of course, Hollywood, uh, there's a love interest and different things going on. But then all of a sudden, the scene is he gets up. He's resurrected. Someone who's just been filled with bullets stands up and comes back to life. And the people who just shot him all draw their guns again, and they're all perplexed. And what is happening? And so they all open fire on him again. And he's standing in a hallway with them at the other end. And the reason I watch this every year around Easter, as I love the picture that's there. He goes, he whispers and he says, no. And he holds his hand up and the bullets are coming at him and they all slow down and they stop. They stop in midair in front of him and he takes the bullet out and he looks at it and he drops it on the ground and all the bullets fall down. And in that moment, you see death being defeated. You see evil being defeated. You see him stand up again and say, no. And those followers that were looking at him going, is he the one? We thought he was the one. They go, he is the one. And he is the one in a way we never imagined he was the one. And that's exactly what is happening here with Jesus' disciples. They're all going, we thought he was one thing, but he's a lot greater than we thought he was. And so Jesus is standing among them and they're trying to get their heads around it. But what is slowly dawning is Jesus is greater. He didn't just come to overthrow a government. He didn't just come to to deal with the, the evil empire. He has come to defeat sin and death itself. And now he stands among them saying, peace to you. And so can you imagine being in that room as Jesus shows up and what he's saying and looking at him? What does this mean? How does this answer every fear that we have? How does it give us a hope that can never be defeated? Well, look at what he says. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What he's saying is all of human history has been leading to this, to me and what I've come to do. All of the Bible points to me. And he's showing them how to see it. But then he says... Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And so he says, this is why I've come. And I had to die. And here's why. And I want us to think about how that connects to everything that we've talked about. All that list of fears. You know, when you read that list that's universal, universal to all humans, the things that we struggle with, You know, I read that list saying about death and failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of uncertainty, the fear of being judged, the fear of inadequacy. And you read through that list and I'm struck with how much of that list has to do with proving ourselves. Wanting to be accepted, wanting to not be rejected, wanting to be loved, wanting to not have bad things happen, to have things set right. And I want us to think about how does the resurrection answer all this. And I think we innately know, at least to a degree, that whole list revolves around this idea of our own inadequacy. We know that we're inadequate in different ways. We know that we don't have it all together. 
I ask this, and I'll ask it of you again. I asked it in the first service, but I'll ask you. Is there anyone here that would stand up and say, I have everything completely together. I've got it all. You can come to me. I have all the answers. I've got everything set. I've got it all. Would there be anyone that would say, yes, that is me? Anybody? The same thing in the first service. No, no takers. No one says, yes, that's me. I've got it all. We all know. We all know that we're struggling in different ways. We all know that we have inadequacy. We all know that if we were to be judged, that it may not turn out great. That we've not done everything perfectly. That we've not kept everything together. In fact, that's what the scriptures tell us. That's what we've been talking about as we've been walking through the book of Romans. Our conscience bears witness. God made us in his image. He made us to know and to love him and to follow him and to honor him, to love others. He gave us a moral code because we are made in his image and we have all gone against it. We have all sinned. We have all rebelled against what God has told us. And as the result, it has made its way into creation and it has messed up everything. Again, Romans tells us the creation is groaning under the weight of sin. The disintegration and the rebellion that comes out of our sin has worked its way into everything. And we see it all around us. And this is what Jesus has come to do, to rescue us from that. To do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. And so something greater is here. And he's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not one who comes just to tell us, this is how you live. Now try to do it the best you can so that you can set things right. And I want to make sure that that is so clear. So often we start to talk about the Bible and who Jesus is. And we talk about morality and all these things. And that's the way our sinful minds hear it. Here's some good information that you can put in your life. And if you do it well enough, you can be accepted. But that is not the gospel. That is not the good news. That is not what Jesus came to do. If it were, we would still be stuck in every single one of these fears. Fear of failure. Fear of rejection. Fear of uncertainty. Fear of being judged. Fear of inadequacy. If it's all on me, all those things are still there. I'm going to fail. But that's not what Jesus came to do. It's not what he says here. Verse 46, he says, thus it was written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. He says, I came to do what you couldn't do for you. I came to live the life that you haven't lived. And he does. The ideal is made flesh. He does it perfectly. God himself comes and walks among us and does everything perfectly. But then he comes to the end of his life where he deserves all the blessings that comes with doing everything perfectly. And he willingly says, I will lay my life down for you. That's what we gather together on Friday night to celebrate. That Jesus willingly lays his life down. And in doing so, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And he took his, our sin upon himself and he paid for it. And when he does that, and when we see that to be true, and we understand what he's doing, that deals with all our inadequacy and all our failures. He says, I will take all of it upon myself. And what you deserve to be judged for, I will take your place. And he does. And he does it perfectly. And he becomes the sacrifice that brings us back into this relationship with God. And he does for us what we can never do 
for ourselves. And in doing so, God accepts his sacrifice and Jesus defeats sin and death. He does what we cannot do. And then he says, I will give you the benefits of my work if you will just put your faith in me. And so when he says here, that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The repentance for forgiveness of sins. Repentance is turning. Turning from your sin, turning from your own way. All of our sin amounts to believing that we're God. I can do this on my own. I don't need anyone else. But when we turn from that idea and we transfer our trust from ourselves and what we do to Jesus and what he's done, there is forgiveness of sins. He says, I will take all of it. I will take every bit of your failure. I will take everything wrong that you've ever done upon myself. And I will give you my perfect righteousness by grace through faith. And he does. And he rescues us. And he brings us out of it. We are made righteous by what he has done. And the resurrection is proof that he has defeated sin and death. That he has done what we could never ever do for ourselves. And he rescues us from all these things. He's dealt with our inadequacy and failure by taking our sin. He's dealt with our fear of being judged by being judged for us. He gives us his righteousness and tells us, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And in doing so, he frees us from rejection and loneliness and bad things and ultimately death. Because he has defeated death. And he is the one that has done it all. Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And in light of that, he stands among them as they're afraid and they're scared and the door is locked. And he says, peace be to you. And then he says, what are you worried about? What are you upset about? I can't help but think he had told them so many times, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to die and I'm going to raise in three days. That he didn't just say at some point in them, remember when I told you that? Remember how many times I said to you, this was what's going to happen? And he stands there in the midst of them. Peace be to you. I've defeated sin and death. I've got this. And so Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so all week, I've been driving around listening to one of my favorite songs in the world by my favorite band. And they have a song where the, the beginning of it just says, the rule has been disproved. The stone it has been moved. The grave is now a groove. All debts are removed. Oh, can't you see what love has done? Jesus has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And the resurrection is proof. And so I want to end here with just two things. The first one, what this means for us today, if we put our faith in Jesus, if we repent from trusting ourselves and place our trust completely in his finished work as God himself who's defeated sin and death, What it shows us is that you are loved. The God of the universe loves you to the very core of your being. He knows everything that you've ever done. All your mess and all your mistakes and all the things that you hide and all the things that leads to to fear of failure and rejection and uncertainty and being judged and inadequacy. He knows it all and he willingly took your place. He stands in that room and says, peace to you. And then he says, look at my hands and my feet. Look at what I've done for you. I love you this much. And so what it means is that God loves you and what he's done for you in Jesus. 
and all our fears of ultimately being accepted and loved that the cross of Jesus Christ proves that you are loved. God loves you. But the second thing I would say to you, in light of this last year and everything else that's been going on, I said at the beginning, hope is a dangerous thing. It can drive a man crazy. It feels that way a lot of times. But if we understand who Jesus is and what he's done, that's no longer true. We have a hope that abides in all things. Now, when we say hope is a dangerous thing, it can drive you crazy. If your hope is in yourself, that's true. If your hope is in the government to fix everything, that's really true. It's kind of scary. If your hope is in everything will be okay when things get back to normal, that's a dangerous thing. But if your hope is in the one who is greater, that has defeated sin and death, that has done everything that you can't do for you, that loves you perfectly and fully and completely, you can hope again. We have a living hope because of what Jesus has done for us. And we have nothing to fear when we understand that. It's the glorious good news of the resurrection of Jesus. So pray with me. God, we thank you that you love us so much that you've done for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. We thank you that we have hope, that we have a confident assurance in the things that are to come because of what you have accomplished on our behalf. I thank you that your hope abides in all things. That in any situation that you have proven that you are in control and that you love us and that you are at work in the midst of all of it. And so we thank you for that. I pray that you would continue to increase our faith. Continue to help us to transfer our trust completely from ourselves to you, from what we could do to what you have done for us. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.